Thank you, Cole and Tiffany. Join me in a word of prayer as we move forward in our service. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for our ability to read it freely, to study it, to hear from you through it. Lord, today we pray that indeed that would be the case, that we would hear from you through it. And having heard from you, Father, we would be responsive to your leadership. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in a little while, it's going to be Sunday afternoon, and there are lots of different choices for occupational things to do on Sunday afternoons. You can take a walk. It's cold and rainy out there today, but we're going to take a walk later because that's who we are. You could read a book. Um, You could watch a British mystery on Netflix or Amazon Prime, or if some of you will probably end up watching football this afternoon because a fairly local team apparently is playing today. I'm sure you'll want to support them if you're a football kind of person. I personally am not football, the sport where time takes on a whole different meaning altogether, where somehow 15 minutes can turn into an hour and a half. I just do not know how that happens. Pastor Laura and I used to go to uh, our son Matthew's football games in the middle of the freezing, cold Massachusetts winters, and I would stand there staring not at the game, but at the clock, saying, please move, please go some more, please count down, please. Anyway, Sunday afternoon, just one of those dozens of multiple choice option tests we get every week. Life is full of choices. Choices have consequences. Choices indicate our priorities in life. And the thing is, for a Christian, for a believer in Jesus, our choices are supposed to be focused on Jesus, the one with real power. So man, today let's choose Jesus, shall we? Let's choose the way of Christ. He has the real power. And we're going to hear him unpack some of that in this letter to the church at Pergamum today, which is found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. So at home, if you're watching through our website, there's an opportunity for a Bible translation there. You can click on and follow along. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. If you have your own Bibles at home, even better, uh, turn them, uh, open them up and turn them to the pages that capture these verses. Uh, so let me begin. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you may remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So we've mentioned, you know, my favorite sport, football, already. 
If you're familiar with the sport, of course, you know that the players the operate in plays according to particular patterns of play. Um, it'll be, we remain to see how Kansas City is going to do this afternoon. And by the way, if they do win and go on to the Super Bowl, I'm mean, sorry, Super Bowl, they're going to meet Sarah Thomas, who is the first woman to ref in a Super Bowl game. So there's that. We've noticed in chapters two so far, it'll be chapters two and three, that uh, John is writing to seven churches in ancient Asia Minor. Ephesus, Smyrna, we've been there already on our tour. We're today in Pergamum. There's going to come Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And when he takes us on this tour, the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaking to us the words of Jesus, when he takes us on this tour, he's generally following a pattern himself. The pattern goes something like this. Remember, he gives some information. Jesus gives some information about himself. He identifies some things in that church that's worth uh, copying, worth emulating. He talks about some things to avoid and the reason why we should avoid those things. And then he gives us this idea of consequences and reward. So this pattern is going to hold true. A couple of elements will be missing for a couple of the churches that we talk about, but that pattern is going to hold true through the end of chapter 3. So again, the first element in our pattern is in verse 12, we hear a little bit more about Jesus. He's described here, he describes himself here as him who has the sharp two-edged sword. A sword. A symbol of power. A symbol of authority in that day and time. It's a reference to power in a city of power. Pergamum was a capital of a Roman province. And because it was a capital of a Roman province, it was a city to which authority had been given to inflict capital punishment. Now, I have to say, it's a lot less fun picking on Steve Hawk when he's not physically in front of me and I can see his reactions on his face. But what the heck, we'll do it anyway. Back when Steve was just a wee lad, no, no, really, he was probably older than that, there was a movie starring Jim Carrey, who's a little crazy these days. The movie was called Bruce Almighty. And somehow along in this movie, this character played by Jim Carrey becomes... Uh, divine. He gets divine authority. And he sings the song, I've got the power. And he snaps his fingers to make things happen. Bruce Almighty didn't really have power. Government has delegated power. But Jesus has eternal, comprehensive power. And so this first little thing we learn about Jesus in this letter to this church is that he is the one with power. Pastor Laura read us the passage from the Gospel of John. Power to willingly lay down his life. Power to take it up again at the resurrection. So, but then we get a bit of a mixed report card for this church at Pergamum. Now, I don't know what your experience has been with report cards or what your current experience is with report cards. I've had some mixed experiences along the way. In sixth grade, I had to take French at my junior high school. Now, I thought this in sixth grade. My dad had been stationed in France in the military. I had lived there. I'd lived in France. I had seen the Eiffel Tower. How tough could French be? And yet, I managed to pull off an F in French a particular semester. So my report card had some A's, it had a couple of B's, and it had this giant 
F. I'm convinced they printed the Fs in bold, italicized, highlighted print because somehow my dad was able to scoot past all the A's and the B's and hone in directly on the F. I failed French. Turns out it was harder than I thought it would be. And then later on, when I was in high school, I got into a little academic trouble in a particular subject or two. And so my parents requested, God bless them, my parents requested from the school that I get a weekly report card. How exciting that was for me. My dad's rule was, bees or better. Well, one day, in one of those classes that I was having some trouble with, and honestly, most of the trouble was because eh, I just didn't really want to do the work. Eh. Um, one, one week, in one of those classes, I didn't get a B. I got a B-. Now, I knew my dad was not going to accept a B-. These report cards were handwritten. The entries were handwritten by the teachers. So clever me, I thought, you know what I'm going to do on the way home? I'm going to take out my pen, and I'm going to turn that B- minus into a B+. Plus. And so I did take out my pen, and I did turn the minus into a plus. Unfortunately for me, the pen that I used to turn the minus into a plus was a different color ink. Now, I knew my dad was going to pick up on that, so I'm thinking to myself, self, self, what are you going to do about this? And so it had been rainy in the morning, so I'm walking home from school that day. There were a few puddles on the sidewalks, and I thought, aha, what is what I'll do? I'll drop the report card, accidentally, into one of these puddles, and it will blend the ink together, it'll blur it. He won't be able to tell the difference in the color ink from the minus to the plus. And so I did that. Dropped it in the puddle, picked it up, patted it to try to make it dry a little bit. And then I noticed it had not, in fact, blurred the colors of the ink so that my dad couldn't tell. What it, in fact, had done was highlight the difference in the colors of the ink. It made it bold and obvious that what had been a B- minus had been turned by somebody into a B+. My dad and I, we had a, we had a conversation about that. Didn't go very well. Mixed report cards. I don't think I'm the only person on the planet who's ever had a mixed report card. And not only am I not the only person on the planet, this church at Pergamum has a mixed report card. Look first, some really good grades. There's this commendation in verse 13. He says, Jesus says to them, he knows where they live. He says, they live where Satan has his throne. In fact, this city, Pergamum, was the center of the worship of the emperor for the entire province. It was a tough place to be a Christian. In the United States, you know, we don't have many places where it's really tough to be a Christian. Here in the Midwest, we're fortunate that You know, as long as we don't get too specific about Jesus, that being identified with a church, lower C church, is okay, as long as we're nice. I've ministered elsewhere in the country where the culture is more openly hostile to public expressions of biblical faith. When Pastor Laura and I were in New England, we were going to an event celebrating the town that the church was in, and we were going to have our church worship band 
play as part of this community celebration that had been advertised. The church had been in this community for over 200 years. You'd think, hey, we have a place and a part of this celebration. They wouldn't let us play Christian songs. I said, well, it's a church band. Uh, All we really do is worship songs. So if we can't play worship songs, what in the world are we going to do? They booted us from the celebration. I think it's a reminder, at least a reminder to me, that we ought not take, to, uh, take lightly or, take, or think uh, too quickly or, or just become complacent about the reality that Christianity is often a contrary voice to the culture. And the culture doesn't like it. And in the day and time of this church at Pergamum, they were living right smack in the middle of a place that was hostile to the exclusive message of Jesus that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. But even in the middle of that uh, difficult context for this church, most of the people in this church, in verse 13, Jesus says, most of them have held fast to his name, not just claiming the name, but living the life, remaining true, even in extreme cases. He says, this Community is where Satan lives. These followers of these pagan gods had likely been the instigators in the death of the person that's named in this passage called Antipas. He's an early martyr of the church, and tradition says he was slowly roasted to death in a bronze kettle. No quick execution with decapitation or a sword through the heart. None of that stuff. Nope, they put him in a kettle and they roasted him to death. And I got to say that my observation is that it's not fashionable in our scientific age to give Satan his due. But we can't go very far in the scriptures without realizing the scripture's testimony to the reality of evil and the reality of the master of evil, Satan. We shouldn't be lulled by our culture into thinking that Satan is some harmless, make-believe fellow competing in some Halloween costume contest, because he's not. The scriptures testify to this notion, this, this truth that he is real, and he is out to undermine believers' lives, and to undermine the life and effectiveness of this church. But after having reported their perseverance and those good grades associated with remaining true to the name of Jesus, they also got some not-so-good grades, in fact, some really bad grades on their report card. The critique here, this reference to to Balaam, he was one who advised advised Midianite women um, in the ancient history of Israel to lead Israelites astray. And two weeks ago, we mentioned the Nicolaitans. Uh, We already saw them in Ephesus. These were people who wanted it both ways. They said that they followed God, but they wanted to do whatever they wanted to do. And specifically mentioned both here and in previous instances was sexual immorality, winking at behavior that's contrary to the will of God. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of trying to teach kids how to wink. It's, a, it's an interesting experiment, watching them try to figure out what it means to close one eye quickly and open it again. It's, it's a tough gig to teach them how to wink. And that's okay. It's kind of fun. But the problem is, as believers, when we wink at ideas, 
thinking and behavior that is contrary to the will of God. Jesus says, some in your midst to this church at Pergamum, some in your midst are trying to have it both ways. And the other people around them are kind of putting up with it. And Jesus says, that's no good. Here's the thing I've noticed about compromise. It doesn't have to be grand. In fact, when it initially shows up in the life of a believer, compromise usually is not grand. The life of compromise usually begins with something very small, seems like it's an off, one-off thing, or it's insignificant. Like, Pastor Lord and I have been walking a lot lately. We've been trying to keep up with that. And i got to tell you, on days when it's, you know, the real feel of the temperature is 15 degrees, I just want to say to myself, I'm going to roll over and go back to bed now because that's just too stinking cold to be out there walking. But I know this about me, <clears throat> that if I say no on one day when the weather's crummy, I might say no on the next day when the weather's crummy. And then the next day after that. And before long, the weather has to be absolutely perfect. But then I say, oh, the weather's perfect today. Let's not ruin it by walking. Let's go do something else. And before you know it, the little incremental steps of compromise compromise have taken over. I remember this vividly. My son was in a program for young boys at a church when we were living in San Antonio, Texas. It was a program called Royal Ambassadors. And Paul had had some, my son Paul, oh, he's going to be upset that I mentioned his name. Oh, well, too late now. My son Paul had some trouble on his report card, following in his dad's footsteps. And uh, <clears throat> so I just was trying to restrict his activities a bit and restrict his uh, time for other things so that he could spend more time on his studying. That's a noble thing for parents to do, right? And so I said to Paul, you're not going to go back to the royal ambassadors until you get your grades up. So that Sunday, I'm walking the halls of the church and I am accosted by the guy who um, runs the Royal Ambassadors program for these kids. And he says, I don't think I understand your decision here because what I think you're doing is you're teaching your son that his grades in school are more important than him being grounded in his Christian worldview. And I thought, you know what? He is exactly right. So in the face of this mixed report card that these folks get and that you and I might be getting too, what to do, what to do, what to do? Well, first, verse 16, there's a clear warning. The warning is captured in this word repent because patterns of decision-making, patterns of choices that we make are reversible. With the Spirit's enabling and the Spirit's power, we can turn around. We can go in a different direction. I know you're going to be watching football this afternoon, some of you, and you'll be looking for that reverse play or that double reverse play that confuses, attempts to uh, confuse the defense. In the body of Christ, as a believer in Jesus, if we're going the wrong way, we can, with the enabling of the Holy Spirit, pull a reverse play. We can go the other way. In fact, this word repent that we see over and over and over and over again in the New Testament, this is a word that means a 180-degree turn. Not a slight adjustment to course, but a 180-degree turn. And so we want to pay attention to this warning. We want to hear this notion of repent. And again, just like the last two times, for the last two churches, we hear these words, uh, listen, listen, stay tuned. Listen to the Spirit in verse 17. 
Listen to the promises, because Jesus says to those who overcome, he's going to do two things that I think are magic for the Christian. The first thing is he's going to provide in verse 17 this thing that's called hidden manna to eat. Now, manna, for you Old Testament scholars, you remember, right, when the nation of Israel is wandering in the desert for 40 years and they need food to eat, God provides for them manna from heaven, this bread-like substance that falls from the sky and they pick it up every morning and they have their bread and they're fully nourished. Manna, nourishment, the heart of sustenance for these people. Here, this manna is not physical, it's not bread, it's not a donut or a steak. This manna is a spiritual nourishment, spiritual encouragement to do those things that God has called us to do. Where do we find this spiritual nourishment? Pretty straightforward. We pray, we spend time in the Word, we engage with other believers. Nourishment. I can't tell you how important it is, though I'd like to, to have people in your life who are fellow believers in Jesus, who love you to death, and who love you enough to look you in the eye and say, you know what, I'm not so sure that decision you made was the best one ever. To help us get back on track. People who love you and who are themselves grounded in prayer and grounded in the Word of God. People who love you and care about you, care about you enough to say what can be hard things. Like, I'm not so sure that's the best idea you've ever had. Nourishment. And then, verse 17, Jesus talks about this thing called a white stone. Now, in the context for these folks, we don't know exactly what was uh, implied by this idea of the white stone, because in the ancient world, white stones were used for several different things. In a, in a court case, jurors would cast a stone to declare innocence or guilt, and the stone they would cast to declare innocence would be a white stone. Or there was this custom of marking good days. I don't know if they put them in a clay jar or whatever, but if you had a good day, you'd put a white stone in a pot to mark it. But another thing that white stones were often used for was it like an admission ticket. A, a, a ticket to get into some special event, some special place, some special happening. I didn't learn this till <clears throat> later on when I was there, but um, at Fenway Park in Boston, Massachusetts, where the real baseball team, the Boston Red Sox, play, if you're a pastor, if you're a minister, if you're a member of the clergy, you can always get in as long as you're willing to be in the standing room only section. I didn't know that until it was way too late for me personally. But that ticket in to see a Red Sox game, for me, that makes my heart go pitter-patter. But here, the white stone, probably an admission ticket, is, is enhanced in a very special way. Because on this white stone, Jesus says there's going to be a name known only to the recipient, of course, and the sender and the giver of the stone. This is a picture of the intimacy of a personal relationship with Jesus. That song from Tommy Walker that I pointed you to earlier, He Knows My Name. Now, not just the name that your mom and dad gave you, 
those kids naming extravaganzas, those baby name books that are on the marketplace, those websites that you can go to with all, you know, 10 million names that you can look through to try to pick a name that you think will fit your kid forever. My parents got a little lazy. My dad's name was Howard. They called me Howard the second. Howard. With some diminutive nicknames that I don't like very much. But I didn't get a vote. Parents naming kids. Our Colorado grandkids, the boy is named Cooper. The girl is named Harper. I can remember when uh, Cooper was coming along and, and uh, his mom and dad were thinking about names and they, they finally landed on this name Cooper, which they thought was A, pretty darn good and clever, but B, a little unique, because isn't that what parents are often looking for? A unique name. So they had come to visit us. Uh, we were taking them back to the airport, back when you could actually sit with people at the gate and and get them on the airplane before they went back to wherever they were getting. And, and so my son and daughter-in-law, our son and daughter-in-law are there, our grandson Cooper is there, all excited. We've had a really good visit with him, only even though you know, he was a bit of a mischievous lad. Uh, we were in the Boston Museum of Science, and one second he was there, and then the next second he wasn't, and this two-year-old was running amok. But we're sitting there at the gate, and... We think, ah, Cooper, yeah, unique name. And then another mom is there with another little boy, and she calls him. She says, hey, Cooper, come here. Not as unique as we thought it was. So then they named the granddaughter Harper, a little more unique. You remember um, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Don't you? Harper? Lee, thank you. That was a test. You passed very well. Done. Outstanding. Harper Lee, To Kill a Mockingbird. Great book. But uh, if our Harper was going to be writing the book, it would be not to kill a mockingbird, but to rule the mockingbirds and everything else on the planet. Parents and names. It's funny, I think. But here's the thing. Jesus has provided for us a very special, personal name. That intimate connection between giver of the name and receiver of the name. A name known only to him. Man. It's encouragement, at least to me, to talk about him, to talk to him, to regularly read Jesus' bestseller, to sing about him, to sing to him, and here, in concert with this church at Pergamum, to make Jesus' priorities our priorities. We've said on our website and other places that our church mission is to be touching God's heart and touching people's hearts. It's really a simple thing at the end of every day. It's really a simple matter of asking ourselves, what is Jesus doing and getting in on that? Some folks in Pergamum were not doing that. Everyone here doesn't do that. No one here, none of us, does it consistently. But it's the start of a new year, 2021. And Jesus has the power to help us do what he would do, what he would have us to do. Not to choose A, B, or C in our personal list of priorities, but to choose J, Jesus. It's an old, old question. All the way back to the 
book of Joshua and the time of Joshua in the Old Testament and before that, Joshua says to his gang, you choose today whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When Pastor Laura read us that book, episode from the Gospel of John, verse 10, chapter 10, Jesus says, listen, come on. I'm not offering you some namby-pamby, pitiful, religious decoration for your life. I'm offering you life to the full. And it seems a little weird, at least to me during a pandemic, to think about life to the full. But isn't isn't this exactly the right time to make sure that our lives match Jesus' hopes for our lives? Let's choose J, shall we? Pray with me. Father, we...